Welcome to Mostly Talk, a podcast about business or an excuse to hear from some interesting people. We'll leave that up to you. Find out more at mostly.consulting. Welcome to Mostly Talk. My name's James Brewster, the podcast host. This week I'm co-hosting with Deborah Fleming, a fellow management consultant who specialises in organisational development and change. And this week I'm delighted to announce we are interviewing Edgar Shine who's a specialist in the field of organisational culture. He's written many books in the field and yeah, he's one of the world's leading experts uh, with respect to culture. And he's teamed up with his son, Peter Shine, and they're releasing the book, uh, Humble Leadership. And they've released it, sorry. Uh, So we talk quite a lot about that and their careers and get some advice on organisational culture. Thanks for listening and find out a bit more about what we do at Mostly.Consulting. Peter, how are you doing? Are you well? I'm well, yeah. Hi, Peter. How are you? I, I'm good. How are you? I'm um, well. I'm upright. I'm alive. I'm I'm okay. Uh-oh. We saw you, we saw your dad briefly. He came on for maybe two minutes, and then and then he had a wee technical glitch. So he, I think he oh. was on and off. Uh oh. Wonder what that was. We just uh, got him going with his headset. It looks pretty professional, I have to say, Peter. He's all wired for sound and everything. I I don't know why we waited so long on that one, but. uh, (laughs) um, And is he, he, he's in his own home in in California as well, I guess? Yeah, yeah, he's he's a mile or so away. And, you know, we're both vaccinated and have been for a while. So I suppose there's no reason why we couldn't be just there together. Here he comes back. Um, we're we're just sort of I suppose we're we've, we're now in the habit of Zoom, right? So yeah. <laughs> why why do things you know together when you could do them over Zoom? Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, but I I do think there's you know change is gradual. Um, yeah. <laughs> so and we've there- changed. Now are we going to change back? Is the that is uh, the big question right that is the big question it feels great to be with someone in person though doesn't it It just there's nothing beats it it's it's yeah no it it can't be all or nothing it's uh we just are um, you hearing me okay yeah yes i can hear you because i disappeared for a minute without knowing why but i'm back (laughs) (laughs) did uh did zoom crash on you or something no, I was fiddling with the uh, uh, with the volumes, and for some reason lost the connection. And when I tried to get back, it wanted a meeting number, which I tried to get off the uh, materials, and it said wrong number. So I started all over again and got you. There, there we go. <laughs> it's not just there are a that- few mysteries to it all. I find the technology is hard as well. It's not always easy, is it? It's just, it's kind of one of these things. People are more reliable in some ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Deborah, you made a reference to being upright 
did have you just had COVID? I hope no. Not. I'm. I'm. Um, well, we had uh, we had snow this morning, and I oh. just came back from a hike, and it was bright sunshine. So it's been three seasons in one day. I don't know what Scotland's like, but I'm down in London, and um, yeah, I just it's been one of those mad, crazy days, and yeah, I won't bore you with the details, but. I am here, I am fully present, and I am very excited. Snowing in London. Yeah. In Did you get snow? Did you get snow, James? No, we were in a perfect day. It's been, it's oh. been like spring, God. perfect sun and, and nice. So I was out flying a kite and now um, playing with kids and stuff. So it's been it's been nice, nice treat. But yeah. I've, uh, yeah, and uh, I don't know, do you just want to start? It was kind of, we put an agenda around, but I wanted to keep it as informal as possible. And, and I, uh, I started saying to your dad briefly there before, uh, Deborah's mean so much to me. She's helped me out so much in the last year in my career and, and a really good friend from from Wales, obviously. We've never met in person, believe it or not. So no. of, uh, in the same way I met you, Peter, you know, we've, we've built up our relationship digitally, which is quite weird. But um, her hero in life, believe it or not, is this man who is your father, Ed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so. I better I better say how I kind of let me just uh, temper that a little bit. But James and I have known each other a little while now, and uh, he's helped me out through lockdown equally usefully. Um, but I studied organizational development in 2000 when it was still quite embryonic and new in the UK. I did a master's over at um, Sheffield University. And top of the reading list was process consultation. Very and, um, good. I'm good on my start. Phone. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> I knew that. So, um, what it, what I think your your books have done for me in my twenty odd year career now is moved me away from expert consultation to be much more com comfortable with process consultation. I was making that uh, classic mistake of always trying to sell myself and then realizing that process consultation is not about that, right? <laughs> so I have spent uh, 20 years plus working with senior leaders who are in various stages of complex change and with the theories of process consultation and all that stuff that we'd learned in that book on my degree. I have carried it with me through many roles and many clients. I have bolted on um, a lot of work on psychodynamics, which is obviously, I think a huge complement to process consultation and also humble leadership. So um, to say I'm a fan is an understatement. To say that um, the books have changed my career path is also an understatement, but it informs everything that I do. And it's an absolute pleasure to meet you both. And um, I know that my client base is going to be very, very interested in listening to what we've got to say today about humble leadership. Wonderful. And tell us a little more about your client base. What is, what is yeah. the group we're addressing today? So I would say, uh, for me, my client base covers a variety of sectors, uh, brewing, um, insurance, 
banking. I've also done a lot of work with um, biofuels, petrochemicals. So, so, so these are these are your industries, and the the audience are OD people in these industries. Absolutely, and typically. Uh, other departments at the top of those organizations. So it could be global marketing, global branding, it could be logistics, supply chain, but often at the top of the organization where the dysfunction typically starts or ends. <laughs> and uh, like James, I have a massive interest in culture. And um, one of the things that I, really have struggled, well, my clients are in the front line of, and I'm in that struggle with them, is three levels of survival mode at the moment. So I would just set the scene with you about uh, a current client complexity around leaders going into uh, the pandemic with a very clear strategy that has been ripped apart. For example, brewing, the way we're drinking beer is never gonna be the same again, pre and post pandemic, mm -hmm. right? And we're a big pub culture in the UK. So they're at the top of the organizations, leaders trying to find a survival strategy to get us through the pandemic, whilst they themselves are wondering whether their jobs will survive, whilst they are leading teams showing signs of survival. So there are three layers of complexity that I'm right in the front line of. And uh, this is where James and I have had many discussions over the last few months, the complexities of these sort of cultures and also the impact on me, the consultant of those three layers of survival. So that's sort of what's happening. It may be different in the US, but here in the UK, I would say that is atypical right now. So um, I'm curious, sort of at, at the high level, how um, much of this is truly sort of existential, um, the business has changed and it's never going back, versus sort of, you know, we tilted a little bit and we're probably not going to ever tilt back to the, the same straight but straight is still pretty, pretty good. In other words, so with beer consumption, right? I mean, alcohol consumption went up over the last year. Um, pub consumption obviously went to near zero or zero, depending on which month. Um, but at home consumption went up, obviously. So I just, is it, are these things like it's, it's you're struggling with, how your clients are sort of pivoting in a time of rapid change, or are they truly feeling like their business is threatened? I mean, if their jobs are feeling threatened, is their business feeling threatened? Well, I think more mergers are on the horizon. So I think um, growth will still come from the obvious places like mergers, mm -hmm. but you know, they genuinely, genuinely, are having to pivot quicker than they've ever got, you know, yeah. time for, you know. And secondly, I don't know about you guys, but in survival, it's drained me of energy. I'm, I'm, you know, our capacity to make quick decisions and to, you know, support uh, is, is at its lowest when we 
are at our lowest in our energy levels. Yeah. So as the consultant to that, I'm working hard with my friendship groups like James. I'm working hard with my supervision to keep my resources high so that I, I can be in service of all of this sort of survival. Yeah. Does, does that give you a bit of context, Ed and Peter? Sure. Yeah. I, so one thing you said that was interesting is so your clients aren't necessarily OD. They're senior management in functions. A lot of them are, yeah. So it might be the senior HR person with a knowledge of OD that brings me in because we're let's face it we're, we're a little bit behind in the uk from od we're a little bit the us is in advance of us you know you guys already had the od journal way before i'd seen it in the uk so we asked i i still find myself explaining to people what od is here in the uk so that's why people bring people like james and i in to support them um, Ed, Ed might find some irony in that, though. <laughs> Go on, then. Well, you know, recently <clears throat> someone asked me to judge a very nice five-by-five five table which listed all the OD skills and all the OD processes, and would I bless this? And I said, absolutely not, because I, I don't really know yet what OD is. So for me to say this grid has the right uh, ideas of what it is and what skills you need, mm. I guess the, the, you, the people who teach this stuff, and I am one of them, teach bits and pieces. I teach them about culture or whatever but I don't teach OD and mm. I don't know of any university that teaches it at a doctoral level. It's a, it's a practice at the master's level mm. and it's a necessary and brilliant practice that has all kinds of uh, angles to it. But when someone says, what is OD? I say, well, I once edited 30 books, each of which you remember the Addison Wesley OD series? Every one of those books was about OD. And that's the only way I thought we could represent it. Well, actually, if you say the word OD to many people in the human resource sector in the UK, some of them think it's still about organizational design. Oh, yeah. Sure, and that's a piece of it. And that is a piece of it, but they, they, they then, you know, they, they see that, change is the catalyst for change is a bit of restructuring at od come and do some od but actually that is not not where i'm that's not where i'm at that's not where my client base is and there are two two difficult polarities <clears throat> one polarity is between pragmatism and humanism mm. you know is od yeah. as i believe really a pragmatic solution or is OD an effort to humanize organizations? Mm, now there's a good debate we could have. The other polarity is between the dialogic people like, uh, you, you've heard the term dialogic OD and seen that book by Bush and Marshak. 
No, I haven't. No, that's not familiar to me. So one pole is the, we're working always with open systems. Okay. And therefore what matters is the spirit of inquiry and that leads to process consultation, et cetera, et cetera. The other end of that polarity is the uh, diagnostic OD people who have a zillion tools ready to go. You know, you want team building, all right, I can give you a program. Yeah. OD is intervention from beginning to end. Mm. I have a, there I have are a... no stages. <laughs> As a practitioner, it's all one thing. It's all intervention. I do have a I little... hope you're recording all this. I do have a little story, actually, because I was listening to um, your book on Audible over the weekend. And uh, I had been working with a, a retailer in the UK and uh, I had been observing their um, team meetings and we'd, ha we'd had a few tantrums, we'd had a few people leave, tension was high. And I had been observing a couple of these meetings and doing a bit of gathering of information on what it is the organization wanted to change and what their purpose was. And their purpose statement was, we provide value to families and we act like a family. And this, mm. had been, this had been bothering me for days, right? And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then I took a bit of a brave step. And in one of the leadership uh, meetings, I said to them, I don't know about you, but my family's really dysfunctional. And I do my family is really dysfunctional. Oh, dysfunction, yeah. And I'm wondering whether act like a family is giving you as a leadership team permission to act like a dysfunctional family. <laughs> and it was the most painful four minutes of my entire career because nobody said anything. And I thought, well, that's it, I'm fired, right? I'm fired, that's it. But actually what then happened was that intervention set off a stream of events and questions which resulted in them changing their strap line to we provide value for families, but we are a leadership team. And something gave them permission to act more maturely together. Hmm. And I think, you know, that is a, one of my more recent examples where I'd say, you know, there were many, many interventions, but my favorite one was just that question. Um, yeah, good for you. And it, it, it's about, um, about a year on from that project now. And they're being very successful in retail in the UK, despite the pandemic. Um, so yeah, they, I do concur that every intervention, uh, you're intervening all the time. Um, all the time, right. Worth a reminder. So I just want to go back to the, the other irony that I thought Ed was going to point out is that so much of what informed a lot of the, the, the early work, um, even, you know, predating Ed, <laughs> that was a joke, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
was the Tavistock Eric Trist yeah. stuff, the recognition of socio-technical systems being mm-hmm. that idea being just absolutely at the core of everything that they do. And, you know, that was mines in Wales, I believe, you know, yeah. or, or certainly in the north of England. Yeah. So, um, uh, and, and also the first time I went to Wales, first time I went to the UK was um, uh, when Ed was doing OD work, right, Ed, for, um, for industrial Imperial chemicals. chemicals. Yeah, Imperial. I don't know if they still exist, but Imperial Chemicals was... ICI. I- ICI, ICI. ICI. Yeah. was a, a big change client. Mm. Mm. And this is in the late 60s. Mm. Yeah, just so, a little bit before my time. Yeah, well, I mean, the, but anyway, I mean, the, the big international companies were, were some, the ones who were thinking about OD early, earlier weren't just in the US. I guess yeah. that's my point. Yeah. Shell, Shell and British Petroleum yeah. did a great deal in this area. Yes, yeah. that's where my background is. I'm in oil and gas. I was an engineer for 15 years. So I'm obviously quite new to culture. I got obsessed with it when I uh, went through downturns and kind of saw the negative consequences associated with culture. And then I studied an MBA part time over the last uh, three years and got introduced to, to Ed's, Ed's work, really, and, and Peter, too, I guess, to an extent. And and then I, I fell in love with it, you know, the, the values, purpose. And and then I, um, yeah, I went to work for a small company that won war, awards for its culture. And they were really conscious of the fact that you needed to take care of people. And mm. and so I came at it from a very humanistic approach and, and um, had a really nice ethos. It was such a sort of beautiful little consultancy that was 100 people and it's just a nice size that you could manage the culture uh, one really strong leader who acted like a father and then I thought on completion of my MBA I would study uh, sorry focus really on culture and I did my dissertation on culture I think I referenced your books 22 times uh, <laughs> in, my, <laughs> in my paper and then formed a small consultancy during lockdown last year and and we're working with oil and gas clients with the energy transition. So kind of climate stuff. And then I don't know if you know much about Netflix and how they've consciously developed their culture and Reed Hastings was quite visionary really from the off and had a culture deck and is quite articulate. Would you, would you be familiar with, with that sort of model and, and being really conscious from the off of what your culture is and expressing it to the world really from, you know, there's loads of other really good examples, I guess, that of companies that have done well, that. Well, yeah, we're we're uh, pretty familiar with that deck and and with the idea, and we're largely supportive. I think there were, yeah, and I haven't read that yet, but that so this is um, this is Reed Hastings cult. It's 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 his story of Netflix, but I mean, one thing that you have to be awed by Netflix is how in really only about a decade, they completely transformed that, you know, they were in the media distribution business when they started. Yes. Yeah. And now they make movies. Not <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and the streaming stuff is sort of an instantiation that that's really, that's, that's good reading of the technology, but they're, they're, 
you know, their technology prowess, I think, is less the story than their business prowess. And, uh-huh. and that, that culture of reinvention, and, and I, my understanding when I was an engineer is that you're kind of, you look at your culture as being this static thing and you want to preserve it as is, whereas they, they kind of liberated people to be inventive. And, and they talk about a culture of a professional um, sports team. So you get mm-hmm. talent density is the first concept. So you get the best of the best. You pay above average. Uh, radical candor. So they talk about, you know, and I was surrounded by some of them in, in, in industry, but brilliant jerks who would kind of, what they want is people who say things with really good intentions and, and we all want to grow together. Mm-hmm. And then the final thing is removal of controls. So a lot less policies and procedure and bureaucracy, essentially. So that's kind of the three, the three main concepts in the book. and and. Yeah, I think it's quite nice, and it's obviously worked well for them, you know. But maybe not everyone. But how does it? How does the model differ from some of the models in oil and gas, James? Have you like seen many differences? Is it? I think. I think. Um, you know, the difference between a, I don't know, a professional sports team culture where you're you're essentially you're getting rid of people who are considered to be dead wood and pay them a big severance pay. So it's quite an aggressive strategy of trying to get the best of the best. Whereas in, in engineering institutes, perhaps it's more, you're more accommodating of lots of different types of people. And, right. and you just, a lot of people doing the minimum to get, to get by really. And, and it's kind of a, you know, a softer feel to it, more of a business culture where, you know, you're not firing people on a regular basis or paying big severances for them to to go off and develop their career. Whereas Netflix is that sort of the analogy of being like a pro sports team, if that mm. makes sense. And and you've got a bench of players, and and next season you might have the you know attracted someone and paid a premium for them. And that's that's kind of a powerful analogy, I think. Yeah. But you understand where that might be a little problematic. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we, we, I having, you know, been in Silicon Valley for 30 years, mm. I found that the, the original deck, which I think was, it was quite a while ago. I think it was maybe 2011. It, 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 that was yeah, yeah. quite a while ago. And the CEO um, of Facebook said it was the most fundamental document to come out of Silicon Valley at the time, you know, so Facebook were giving it high praise and. It right. Kind of, you know, right. That was Sheryl Sandberg. That's right. Yeah. And, um, but you also have to know that there's there's a side to that that a lot of people find um, oppressive, discriminatory. Um, and I, I, I went to high school with Reed Hastings. The last thing I'm going to do is say anything critical about Reed Hastings because I think <laughs> what he's done is amazing. Yeah. But I found that there was a part of that deck that really made my skin crawl. Mm. And it's because what often what we do in Silicon Valley is just too much that idea of um, we are going to squeeze the absolute most out of you. Mm. And we're only going for the best because mm. we live in a world that's just it is hyper competitive. And it is. Not, no, no, you know, rose tinted glasses here. Um, but there, and, and so there were things like no vacation policy. No, see what I did there? <laughs> no vacation policy, which meant that 
oh, if you need to take a break, go take a break. Mm. But in that context of hyper competition, competitiveness, you're not going to take a break. Mm. So it, it, it just, in a way, it sort of shifted the balance so far to individual responsibility that mm. I feel like it, it runs the risk of really being so tough to survive, right? No slack, no, you know, what if your kid gets sick and you have to take two or three weeks off mm. and you end up being, you know, one of those people ends up with, with a nice severance package because in those two or three weeks, somebody else took your job. Yeah. I'm willing to bet in the company the size of Netflix, that's happened. So I, I just think there, there's, we, we have to be honest and, and sort of, because you can describe that system and have it sound so good because it really, it's really optimizes for quality, for effort, for performance. But is, is it such an over-rotation in favor of those things that it ends up for a lot of people being a really just, it's just, it's too tough a place to work for. And I might be a really talented UI designer, but I just, it's, it's not fun. It's not, it's not worth it. And that's what so I, I, so I have this favorite quote right now, and it's from T.S. Eliot um, from 1934. Um, and he's describing, you know, sort of the human condition of being sort of contending with challenge, the, the darkness from, without, from outside and within is what he describes it as. And D.S. Eliot is referenced in this book, actually. Uh, okay, well, maybe it's the same reference. It's, 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 he says, um, by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. And one of the things that I think that Ed and I try to talk a lot about, and the reason we emphasize relationships so much is because part of that is recognizing that you're not just playing a role within a system. You have to be thinking about other people in a way that allows you collectively, collaboratively to do more than you could as two perfect cogs in a system. You have to be good. You have to be good to each other. Maybe you have to be good what you do, but you also have to be good to each other because there's going to be more to be gained by people sort of recognizing their humanity than just playing this role in the system. That, that is a perfect link into starting to dive into humble leadership because that for me is, is, really at the forefront of a lot of people's minds here in the UK you know we are going to have to look after each other better we're going to have to get closer more intimate we are going to have to deepen our trust we're going to have to listen more so either Ed or yourself Peter can you just give a, a, a short synopsis for those people who haven't read the book about the idea behind humble leadership and why this relationship is really at the heart of this new new theory now sure why why don't i start just to tease and get 
Ed going <laughs> to tease with the breaking down the two the two words. So first humble, meaning not not necessarily some personality trait or some sort of spiritual sort of transcend transcendent state of being. Those things aren't. It's not that it's not that, but that's not a requirement. All humble need, needs to be, in our view, is a recognition of of in the here and now that you may not have the answers and you're going to be better off acknowledging and embracing the fact that you don't have the answer. There are certain things that you remain ignorant about in the non-judgmental use of the word ignorant. You, there are things you don't know. And there are things in your team or your, your work group that people do know. And the, the group doesn't perform as well if those other ideas aren't brought out to the surface. Right. So we talk about here and now humility. That's what humble means. It okay. do, again, it doesn't mean in a Christian or Confucian or, or uh, any sort of spiritual sense. Again, those things aren't bad, <laughs> but all we're asking for is going to work, accepting that you don't have all the answers. And then leadership is a process. Um, leadership is, is it, we're, so we're not talking about, the book isn't called humble leader or humble leaders. It's leadership, which we define as doing something um, new and better. And in, with that sort of limited definition, leadership can come from anywhere in the organization. It doesn't right. have to come from the C-suite. So that's why we emphasize leadership, not leader. It happens anywhere. When you, when you see an opportunity to do something new and better. Right. So that's, that's sort of framing what the title was, but obviously that's not exactly what the book is about. So maybe, Ed, do you wanna? Yeah, I, I want to put what Peter said into context historically. Mm -hmm. It seems to me in the uh, evolution of, of particularly in industrial West, the idea of the organization as a machine and work as something that you could scientifically describe and allocate to people, that you could hire hands, you didn't hire whole people. That led to a managerial model that slid into a leadership model that what, what managers really do <clears throat> is run the machine. They, they design the parts or hire the parts to fit into the right roles and they give the incentives and they control and they monitor uh, performance and <clears throat> That has become kind of a, a culture of management. And I want to use the word management here to differentiate it from leadership, while most people don't. But that culture was built on a machine model of what work is. And I think what's happened in the last 25 years, maybe you're in the last 50 years, 
the socio-tech open systems model began to be seen as a better representation of what organizations do today. They're not all automobile companies running assembly lines, which you can pretty well mechanize. Mm. Today's organizations live in a very volatile environment in which their strategies uh, get attacked uh, both externally and from internally where technologies change all the time. So leadership now is really somebody who is in a managerial role saying, what the hell? I, I don't know enough to decide what our strategy should be. Mm. I, I'm living in a world where I'm getting pounded from all sorts of technological and political and economic things. And I then realize, apropos of what Peter said, I need help. Mm. And the help isn't the expertise of some McKinsey's consultant telling me what my strategy should be. I have to go into my own direct reports and my peers and be able to say, what the hell should we be doing under these current crisis conditions? Mm. How does our organization fit into this damn pandemic? What could we be doing differently? And the answers are going to come out of unexpected sources. There will be somebody in the supply chain organization that has the real answer of how we get these, get all this chemical stuff around to all, all the parts of the world. And that may make the difference to whether our organization does better or not. So what this is saying, the bottom line is, the leader of today in this new world has to be relational, has to treat it as a group sport, and has to collapse the professional distance mm. between herself and the direct reports and be able to say and make herself vulnerable I don't know what to do. I need help, and I need help from all of you in this organization. Now, that's not easy to, to do, but I think that's the reality that leaders face and why they come to consultants and want help. And the first thing we have to do then is to get them to accept their vulnerability and start forming relationships with the people who will help them. Upward, sideways, and downward. And this new leadership model in the book is all about building those level two relationships in order to be able to figure out what would be new and what would be better. But at the, I mean, this is the first time in this conversation we've mentioned the levels. Now I'm, um, I've read up on them. I'm, I'm deeply curious about them. But for our listeners. Just summarize very briefly the minus, start with the minus. <laughs> there's, a, there's quite a few people who are gonna to relate to this. Um, start with the brief summary of those levels. Cause I think if we are getting into the, the technology, I, I want people to understand them. 
I want Peter to do that, but I want to make the final historical link that what Peter will describe as level one was historically absolutely the way to run things. Mm. And the reason we had to create a level of relationships is because we could see that that model, which was taken for granted by everyone, was no longer the correct model. We needed a more refined model. Right. Okay. That's helpful background, actually. So, Peter, can you quickly Yeah, so it's it's sort of four levels of relationship, and I'll I'll go through each one and and, um, point out that... So this was first in Ed's Humble Consulting book, which came out, I think, in 2013. Um, And then we've kind of found ways to work it into all of our books subsequently because we just think it's a good way of thinking thinking about the world and change yeah but um uh but the other thing that ed will point out uh, normally is that this isn't like invented out of some you know laboratory this is basically another way of stating what we all know as sentient you know human beings and it's been described by sociologists and anthropologists in different kinds of ways. So um, what, what, what we've done with these books is just sort of continue to use the model in order to sort of illuminate a transition that we see coming. Um, so the, the first level, um, you would naturally think, well, it's gotta be, le- it's probably level one or it's level zero. Um, but our building actually starts in the basement uh, <laughs> with yeah. level minus one, because the idea was that it is a relationship, but it's a negative relationship. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's domination or exploitation. It's, um, mm-hmm. you know, the sweatshop or, you know, uh, we've used the example, in fact, speaking with some military audiences about, you know, mm-hmm. basic training or boot camp yeah that uh it's designed as a domination or exploitation relationship yeah so that's level minus one and and the truth is there are lots of parts of modern work that may feel that way if you're just starting out you may feel like you're being dominated and exploited um but you also know that if the if the organization is um sort of fundamentally doing good things, mm-hmm. then that's, these are, these are temporary. This isn't, this isn't a standard state of the business, but sometimes when things get tough, you feel dominated or exploited. Yeah. Um, and so that's level minus one. And level one is, is, you know, the one word on level one is transactional. Mm. that this is where you've established, you know, roles and responsibilities within an organization. Um, and you are, uh, you, you know what the, the handoffs or interactions or, you know, what the, the APIs are between what you do and what other people do. And you are essentially transacting business across those relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also typical of retail. The level, the retail customer-clerk relationship is a level one transactional relationship. 
Um, you don't, you're not friends, you're not going to really get to know each other, but there's some degree of trust and openness that goes along with, with that. Now, it, it is very interesting to see how a lot of retailers are really trying to, you know, convince themselves, maybe even more than they're convincing, convincing their customers, that they do have a personal interest in you, that they have a uh, a um, you know they they really want to feel like they have a relationship with you relationship banking you know mm-hmm. my my I don't think of my customers as as just people who come and buy stuff in my store I think of them as clients you know I'm I'm, I'm I've got I've got a slightly mocking tone. Um, <laughs> Uh, because it's it, it's something that we've seen happening over 10 or 20 years of this whole idea that you have to build stronger relationships with your customers. Well, yes, but we think those are still primarily transactional relationships, right? Mm-hmm. They yeah. still are punctuated by an exchange um, that is probably some sort of, you know, remuneration or some sort of exchange of value but it's not really a friendship or a closeness or an openness or really a fundamental trust. And that leads us to level two, which is um, we initially were using the word personal. This is a personal relationship. And in the humble leadership book, we um, decided to sort of adapt the word to, so rather than personalized, we changed it to personized yeah. because we wanted to emphasize that it's whole person to whole person, openness and trust versus personalized, which is more like what I was kind of referring to somewhat dismissively before as that custom relationship you build with your with your clients that bespoke everything, you know, well, that's great. We love that as consumers, but personized means something different. That means people you work with, you've developed a a strong bond around openness and trust. And the simplest way of describing this difference between transactional and personal is that with a transactional relationship, if you ask a question, you're going to get an answer. If you of, of a direct report, if you're a manager and you need to know something, ask that, ask the question, get the answer you need. What we like to distinguish level two is that you've established a bond of openness and trust so that you're going to get answers to questions you didn't ask because you didn't even know to ask. Right. So it's so the 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 old machine model is there's a, a, a an established transactional relationship. I need to know something. I ask you mm. new model. Level two is I need to know a lot and you know a lot and you're going to tell me because we've established that relationship of openness and trust. And by the way. I could have also said we've established a relationship around psychological safety. Yes, yeah, so these things are very similar. Yeah. It's the it's yeah. conceptually the same thing. 
Amy Edmondson's been a, a colleague of Ed's for a long time. Um, and that idea of psychological safety goes all the way back to Ed's 1961 organizational psychology book. Mm. Um, but the, uh, the, the prominence of, or the salience of that idea is very important for us to recognize. It's what people are talking about. Mm -hmm. And it's because I think people are recognizing that in high risk industries, um, oil and gas maybe being one of them, if there had been a less, enough psychological safety around the deep water horizon, would that accident have happened? Um, I think there are people at BP who would say, no, that wouldn't have happened. Um, and so anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm tangenting a little bit, but um, so that's level two. And then we're in a way where it gets really interesting is level three, which is we tended to think again in the sort of the broad sociological sense as it's a level of intimacy that tends to belong outside of the workforce. Um, it tends to belong in the home. It tends to belong, you know, in a relationship with a partner or a spouse. Um, however, as we've talked to people, you know, they'll often see that and say, no, 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 we, we have a very intimate relationship at work. And we're not crossing the line here, but we know that we know each other really well. We work together, you know, 60 hours a week and um, we can finish each other's sentences. And that's, you know, again, it's, it's a, there's, a, there's a fine line between, you know, appropriate at work and not appropriate at work. We're always dealing with that. Um, and, but we still think that there's a lot of people for whom level three is really gonna resonate mm -hmm. uh, in the work environment because it, it takes you to a different level of communication. That um, and in a way, the the radical candor idea is almost a level three relationship idea that you're so open and trusting with each other that you're going to call bullshit on somebody and you're going to be very straight with them. Um, again, I think that has kind of a sharp edge to it, but um, conceptually, it's 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 in the right place. Um, and a lot of people have also said to us, um, well, I mean, I think it's really sort of level 2.5. That's really where we're most effective at work. So we're like, okay, I mean, this, this isn't, you know, it's, <laughs> there's no right answer, but you know, whatever works. And um, th there's a couple other points I wanted to make just really quickly. Um, one is what a, 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 I think it was a two-star general from the army said to me, he said, our, our people go from level minus one to level four. And I had to kind of pause and say, mm, level four. We don't, we'll, we don't have a level four. I wonder what he means by that. But of course, what he meant is that in certain situations, particularly in the military, where it's life or death, mm -hmm. those bonds are way beyond any sort of level two that Ed and I talk about at work. Mm -hmm. We're talking about something that's far more intense than that. Yeah. And then the, the, the other observation that, that came to us as we were talking about this is that if you invert the model and start with level three, um, you could almost argue that the progression of an enterprise 
starts at level three with, uh, uh, you know, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak or Hewlett and Packard or, um, you know, the, the Dossler brothers, you know, starting out a shoe company in Germany. Um, and then they get into a fight and one becomes Adidas and one becomes Puma. But the, <laughs> the idea that you start with this very intense, intimate relationship, highly creative, highly collaborative, maybe a little contentious, but it starts at, at a really deep and intimate relationship. Mm -hmm. And as they scale, as you scale the business, you start sort of scaling that relationship um, across broader sets of people. And it's not gonna retain the same sort of intensity or intimacy, but if you're scaling in a healthy way, it is retaining the openness and trust that you relied on. Mm. And then as you get bigger and maybe you go international, so you've got, you've got um, cultural boundaries that you're dealing with, different assumptions, um, you start establishing this more transactional relationship because ex expecting openness and trust overnight across national lines or occupational lines, that's a big ask. So you might feel like, well, we have to establish these roles and make them clear because we've got these, you know, international translations we have to make. Um, and then of course, the final stage of, you know, um, sort of entropic bureaucratization mm -hmm. is that you get so big that you start exploiting people. Mm -hmm. um, you tre start treating them as, as you know, not even cogs, but barely even nuts and bolts in an organization. And um, you've, you've, there, you've gotten so big that you've become, you know, absolutely bureaucratic. Um, so that, that's, if you look at, at these levels over time, um, does that help illuminate what we're sort of talking about? That mm -hmm. the, um, the, at, at one level, the you know the the arc of history takes us hopefully beyond as society beyond transactional relationships mm -hmm. but also be aware that the progression that your individual company might go through sort of regresses toward bureaucratization and um what we're saying is you you, you got to fight you got to keep fighting for level two so that was a long answer. <laughs> you're listening to Mostly Talk. If you're enjoying the show, why not leave us a review? Thanks for listening. Now back to it. I was really quite keen to get to get more about your enthusiasm for culture and where did it come from? Just to to get people more enthusiastic in the UK about culture, really. And and how did you mm -hmm. find yourself? Obviously, starting with Ed, perhaps just you know, getting into culture and, and it becoming a thing for you and, and to make it your life's work. I think that's really interesting. Well, we, we all learned about culture. <clears throat> if we had any anthropology in, in college or anywhere. So the idea of culture was very much in my head when I began to be a consultant, but what I didn't realize is that I began to have a problem explaining how a New England 
computer uh, founded company that was building a whole new technology of interacting computing, Digital Equipment Corporation, that hired me as a consultant to work with the founder. And how that could be put into the same box as when on a quarterly visit, because I had done some work on, on career uh, choices, I had been invited to give an address to the 50 top people of Sibagaygi in Basel, Switzerland, the, the big chemical company. And they were both successful companies, but at very different stages of their development. So I began to see that culture would help me as a concept, both in explaining how digital became what it became, mm. the, how culture forms through a founder hiring the kind of people who agree with him, imposing Ken Olson, imposing his own values. I found that the family therapy literature was extremely helpful in figuring out what was going on in digital. At the same time, I could see the same concept of culture being a complete straitjacket on Sibagaygi, mm. that the Basel aristocracy that had been building these companies for 100 years was very deeply embedded, their values with how to treat people. And the, the irony of both of them called themselves family companies but digital was, was a, a family in which the parents said to the kids, do your best, do the right thing, and don't ever lie to anybody. <clears throat> Very simple value system. Uh, and Ken Olson enforced that with customers. He said, if I ever catch you lying to a customer, you're out of here immediately. Now, on the other hand, Sibagaygi <clears throat> was already a, a merged company, an old chemical company facing uh, how, to, how to handle the technology of chemistry, which is very autocratic. So they were a family in which the father makes decisions and everybody falls in line, period. And they felt quite comfortable saying, we are a family. We operate as a family. <laughs> But it was a nightmare difference yeah. from the other one. So I could then see <clears throat> culture evolution in both companies. Mm. And to make it very clear and short, DEC developed such a strong culture of innovation and wanting to continue to evolve interactive computing that they became frozen in that culture when the market shifted to wanting small desktop machines that were less innovative, less interesting. <clears throat> so DEC didn't misunderstand the market. They rejected it. They said, that's not us. The culture was stronger than the economic forces and therefore DEC failed as an economic entity, because the culture was stronger. Very unusual, but it happens. Mm. Sibagagi, on the other hand, 
could see that they were multicultural around their different chemical businesses. And they said, we've got to get out of the industrial chemical business because there's overcapacity. We have to develop new, new cultural elements. And they found that by turning to pharma and seeing that the future is in pharmaceuticals. So they eventually merged with Sandoz, which eventually became Novartis. Mm -hmm. So that is both an economic and a cultural story mm -hmm. because the Sibagaygi of today merged in Novartis is really a pharmaceutical culture evolved from a chemical culture. Mm -hmm. And DEC as a culture has disappeared. <clears throat> but if you talk to ex-DEC people, they say they were the best years of our lives. That's how a company should be run. If I'm running a company, I'd run it exactly the same way, which is to hire the best and the brightest and let them loose. <laughs> so I I'm trying to summarize for you probably 35 years yeah, that's of a hard one. cultural that's a hard experience. One. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard one to summarize. So when, well, the, the bottom line for me is that when someone says, <clears throat> I want to talk about culture, I say that word can mean anything and everything. Mm -hmm. So you have to specify, do you want to talk about a family company? Do you want to talk about founding? Do you want to talk about an old bureaucracy? If you're interested in Netflix, you want to talk about a particular culture uh, but you always have to say what it is you're looking at when you're looking at culture, a group, a company, a society. Mm. There's always a, a context in which culture is, is visible. What is, what is the culture in, in the Shine family of, I mean, there's this whole series of books now. What is the, the, your own culture? that you're creating. In my own family? Yeah, no, like, so you've got all of these books and, you know, you have a father and son team, right? And, uh, you know, that, that it itself is a, is a culture that is, yeah. is often played out in organizations a lot as well. You know, we have, I've got a couple of, family businesses, very large. And, um, you know, you go around the organization and the, the, the people in the organization say, oh God, I wish my manager would stop treating me like a child. You know, um, I wish he'd just let me make some decisions. And mm -hmm. then you sort of, um, you go to the leadership team of that particular organization and you, you give them the curiosity of the question, which is actually an intervention. And you say, I'm really curious why so many of your teams in your organizations are saying that it feels like there's a lot of parent-child stuff going on here. And then you realize there's a father and son on the board. You know, it's kind of, it, it, I'm curious from within just to be really nosy. Um, how is it working together in the way that you do? I mean, I think that the, the thing is that we've always been very close as father and son, this, this, you know, it's, yes, I came out to Silicon Valley and worked for a long time, 
while Ed was still at MIT in, in Cambridge. So we were 3000 miles apart, but we were, we've always been very close. Mm-hmm. And um, th- there's, there, there's never been sort of, you know, real kind of bumps in the road or forks in the road that have, that have, that have separated us. Um, but I think there's, a, there's another thing too that I'm not sure that we would have been able to do what we did um, if I was in my 30s when we started doing this, I think there was a, there was a, I, I was ready to start, um, you know, ranting a little bit and being a little bit more philosophical and writing more. And, and, and uh, Ed was sort of um, open to, to kind of putting some of our de- ideas together. Um, and so I think it, it did sort of happen at a time that we were both ready for it. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'll just to share a little story. I, I remember being really, really surprised when I heard about, um, you guys know the, the UK pop reggae band UB40, right? I yeah. do, I'm a big fan. Huge, you know, huge hit makers in the 80s, just really changed, changed, you know, the a dimension of popular music. Um, and then about like five or 10 years ago, the two founding brothers, Robin and Ollie Campbell, got into an irreconcilable fight and the band split up. Now they're both, the, the successors are both called UB40, of course, because neither could own the unemployment form in the UK, right? So they couldn't own the name. So they both these two brothers and their two bands. But I remember thinking, Jesus, these guys are in their 50s and they get to that level of fight that they break up? No, that's that stuff happens when you're in your 20s and 30s. It just was sort of mind-blowing to me that at that, at that stage in their lives, they finally couldn't take it anymore and split up. Um, Whereas I feel like that's when you, you in some respects can come closer together because you're willing to sort of let go of some of the things that, that maybe drove you away from each other and start emphasizing the things that draw you closer together. I think that's why Ed and I were able to do this when I was in my 50s and you know Ed was in his late 80s is that we had fought a bunch of other battles that might have drawn us apart but now we were able to sort of come together and you know collect and share stories that we could both sort of um you know enhance for each other so um that's i'm sorry i i just the ub41 i i just think it's so strange to think about at that stage when you get when you get to be that old what is it that that at you know, in their 50s drew them to the point where they could no longer work together after 30 years or more of working together. Anyway, I'd love to know that story. If any of your listeners know the story, I'm all ears. (laughs) Well, I have to fill in my side of that (laughs) because I experienced it quite differently. Uh, I came out here... uh, after retiring from MIT and my wife dying to really start my retirement and write my autobiography. 
which I was doing in 2011, 12, 13, 14, and was settling in fairly comfortably <clears throat> when one day Peter arrives and says he would like to work with me and maybe together we could write some important books. Mm -hmm. So he launched me in a whole new career. I call it my fourth career. And what age were uh, you then, Ed? I did not seek him out. He you. Uh, I did not see any, any I had no vision about it. But the minute he showed up, I was faced with a dilemma. And it's a very interesting dilemma. I arrived with 50 years of experience of how this works. And he arrives with 30 years of work experience in Silicon Valley. <clears throat> and how in the world are these two things going to mesh? And I realized that depended more on him than on me. And he took the bait very well by offering a foreword to the fifth edition of the culture book. And I could see immediately some stuff that he knew that was very relevant to that book. So getting at least started on a joint project was not difficult. He offered stuff that was highly relevant and that I could easily accept. And I then learned not to worry about how my experience would impact him, but to stay on the sidelines and let him figure out how he wanted to participate. So the only rule I made, going back to process consultation, is <clears throat> that he would have to attend one of these NTL workshops and learn what process was all about. Because if you don't understand group process, you don't get started in organization development at, at all. And he was willing to do that and, and in, enjoyed it and learned from it. But the final point I want to make is that it led me to a philosophy of find out what he can and wants to do don't impose anything. Mm. You know, you are really, for me, in those few sentences. What? You, for me, for me, in those few sentences, you are embodying the philosophy of OD, and even in, in the way you're working with, with together, because for me, the very first system we ever belong to is our family system, right? And that's and right. That's that's where we bring all our all our favorite parts of our dysfunction to organizational life. That's and and one of my favorite coaches in my entire life was my own father. And in a big decision I had to make one day in my life was um, should I go round the world on my own or not, Dad? To which he answered, "Your mother and I will support you in whatever you decide." And uh, it's that kind of, well, why don't you just give me the bloody answer, right? That's what I wanted to do. And instead, he came back to me with a, with a kind of my very first ability to learn how to make a decision myself. 
And this is where I think what you're saying there, Ed, really for me embodies the very essence of OD, of bringing our family system into organizational life. And, and, and that's it's a really amazing story um, about-, about I, <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a professional hair splitter. <laughs> and I, I don't concur with what your father <laughs> said to you. I, I would not say that to any of my kids. Would I would say? say I will be supportive, but I want to know what you're going to do. Okay. And I, I might want to negotiate with you. And the reason that's important is because it also licenses Peter to challenge me. If, mm. if I just say, hey, I'm, I'm the old man, I've done it all. It's your turn, Peter. You go do it, and I'll support anything. That would be not me at all. Right. Okay. That's. A I would be answer. watching and listening <laughs> for what he wants to do, and making judgments about it, mm. and saying, "No, that doesn't feel right." You know, mm. this is not what we should be doing. Mm. And there has to be a give and take. I, I've learned a very important biological principle. Apparently, the concept of being a parasite is biologically being challenged. There are no parasites. It's always symbiosis. Hmm. What we've called parasites are getting a great deal from the plant, and the plant is getting a great deal from the parasite. So I think this level two is a symbiotic relationship where there has to be mutual support and, and open, open trusting conversation. I mean, that's really the key. How much of your, your work in the field of culture was inspired by being a dad? You had, you had three kids, is that right, Peter? You've got, you've got sisters and things? Yeah, like two, two other sisters, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and did you have these epiphanies about culture and, and you know, values and motivation, engagement? Would you have seen that from being a dad? Uh, you know, that... let, let me um, let Ed ruminate on that while I'll tell you the filler, the, back, the background on that was that um, when Ed was first writing the first culture book, I was an undergrad at Stanford in, in cultural anthropology and my older sister was just starting a PhD program um, at Cal in, in to, to go be an anthropology professor. So it, you know, that we, we sort of joke, it was kind of the family business. Ed, Ed had gone to the Harvard School of Social Relations, which was kind of the great integration in the 60s and 70s of taking that sort of more kind of holistic view. It's not just psychology. It's not just sociology. It's not just anthropology. It's these things are, these disciplines are very closely related. And so I think we, you know, this was dinner table conversation. We would talk about this stuff. Um, and so uh, again, I, th I just think it's sort of an interesting historical coincidence that, that, you know, three of the five of us were actually heavily invested in cultural or social anthropology at exactly the same time, all being expressed in different ways. 
but I, we must have had conversations that I, I don't remember explicitly, but I'm sure that we, that we did. It was just in the air. In Is that not just 80s. the fact that you were so privileged to have such a great dad and you looked up to him and you, he influenced you in some ways, you know, you couldn't have considered a career. Uh, he, uh, no, I mean, he, abs- the, the, the simple answer there is that I went to Stanford thinking I was going to major in psychology no. and realizing that that wasn't where it was at. That to me, you know, it was more about groups and cultures and societies and less about individual behavior was what was, what was, seemed more interesting and and wow. more pertinent to me and that came directly from my father but it might have also come a little bit from my sister um mm. it was kind of where we were at in 1980 1981 wow and speaking for myself <clears throat> i learned early on again the history of od that it had been taken over by too many of the industrial organizational psychologists who were individualistic and value-oriented. And I increasingly became critical of the psychological approach to OD with tests and surveys and quantitative stuff and find myself more and more each year being critical of IO and saying we've got to introduce more participant observation, more ethnography, more qualitative methods, because the psychologists have gone too far with superficial stuff. The, the word culture in psychology is almost now equated to a score on a survey. And boy, is that ever nonsense. So just and yet that- a big part of the field is claiming to study culture by studying responses on surveys. That is something I am, we, we could have a whole different podcast on because I'm, I'm really, I I'm, get so angry by getting asked so many times, can you measure, measure this, measure it, measure it. And I know when we send this podcast out, there are gonna be people who read your book and immediately speak to James and I and say, or even call you and say, how, how do I know what level I'm at? How do, how do you measure where my organization is and how can you move, you know, how are you gonna answer that as a response and help James and I out when we get asked that question? And we have an answer. The answer is at the end of the humble inquiry revision, a set of test questions in the form of little cases that people can see what they would say and then see what the consequences might be of different things they might say. So one can convert this to case materials, yes. And that was Peter's contribution to say, let's give them a test at the end that won't score, we won't give them numbers, but they'll get a lot of information from comparing what they would say to some other answers that we give them. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, the, <laughs> well, the, the other thing that we really wanted to emphasize in the, in the new Humble Inquiry edition was that, do we spend enough time on the context about around what's really going on when we're so distracted and focused by the content 
And so the idea of focusing on how can we describe our culture and put a benchmark on it so that a year or two later, we can see if we've improved or even if we've changed, um, gets you so focused on that content and that, you know, that survey and that survey item and are, are, you know, the employees are taking this survey, are they going to game the thing and figure out what they're getting at and then distort their answers. And so that the, the idea about um, what humble inquiry is really about is figuring out what's really going on. Mm, yeah. Not just, you know, yeah. you know, sort of getting answers to questions that you already kind of know the answer. Yeah, but yeah. somehow you're you think you're you're moving the ball forward by asking that question. Mm. You know, Ed will say, "What's humble inquiry?" It usually starts with your it it's it starts with a question you don't know the answer to, mm. um, and uh, and so we made a big point in in the in the preface of the new book as well to kind of talk about we're at a time where, um, you know, you know, thank you, Kellyanne Conway for introducing to the, the world this very evil notion of alternative facts. Mm. We're so, we're at least in the US, we are still grappling with this idea of a completely different version of, of events, completely mm. different version of reality. And, you know, you've got your facts, I've got my facts. At the same time, people will, will, will quote, was it Winston Churchill or somebody smart said, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Yeah. Well, we've changed that. We, we now we're not even entitled to our own facts because somebody else has alternative facts. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to kind of get people to sort of step back and say, what's really going on? Why is it that we're that we're that we're we're not even agreeing on facts? <laughs> um, so, uh, and the the point about humble inquiry is that you 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 draw people out well enough that you start to get a sense of why they do believe in a different set of facts. Mm -hmm. What's going on with them? Yeah. Not what do I need and what am I going? What questions I can, am I going to ask? It's what's going on with them. And that, actually, that yeah. this is a very, very important link, Peter, because the challenge in organizations that you know we face as consultants right now is we have just been through a, a period of time which is unprecedented. We are going through a period of, of time which is unprecedented. Mm -hmm. And summarize. As, as we draw this conversation together, why now more than ever, it matters humble leadership and this, this approach of, of, of personi personization, which I love, is so much more important than it was even 18 months ago. Well, I, I, I'll just sort of throw out a couple of things. One, I think the pressures to innovate and grow 
um, are inevitably going to be so great. And, you know, the, the, the expectations of the U.S. economy could not, for the second half of the year, could not be higher um, in a positive way. And that's probably true of the U.K. economy as well. Yeah. You guys also have Brexit layered on top of this. So that's a whole other thing. But that's whatever. Funny. Anyway, the, the, you know, the, the, to consider the fact that Brexit and the pandemic happened within 12 months of each other is really pretty amazing. I shouldn't laugh, but it's, I mean, you know, I know you'll get through, but the, 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 the point being, um, if we don't have these kinds of, uh, the, the ability to be open and trusting with each other about what we're seeing and what are, you know, um, bright spots on the horizon that one person sees that we might be able to pivot toward, and, and, and be, be willing and, and safe to share that information, that's how companies are gonna, are gonna be able to innovate. If we can't share that information, then maybe that person who sees that bright spot on the horizon leaves and goes starts, starts another company or joins another company that ends up being your you know, existential competitor. Um, so the, the idea that, um, it's, it's sort of, you know, openness to, to, to you know, ideas and, and, and concepts that'll help us innovate wherever they come from in the organization is one way out of a hard, you know, uh, right. economic challenge. So uh, summar summarizing around um, a pr the pressures to grow that we're going to face post-pandemic, plus this need to innovate being crucial coming out yeah. of the pandemic lending itself to this this humble leadership um right. approach and, and then i guess the, the other thing is sort of at the micro level um with the teams that you work with um you need to be taking time to let everybody kind of air it out a little bit i mean this has been a really hard year and so we, we sort of like to say, just mechanically, what if you said every one hour meeting is gonna be 10 minutes of just check-in going around the room. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to just plow into the agenda and start getting to work. And, you know, if somebody's, you know, grandma just died of COVID, are you really expecting that person to be fully present and ready to get to work? Um, you need to know that stuff. You need, you need to know that about the people that you work with. And the days of sort of leaving your work at home, uh, I mean, leaving your home life at home and your work life at work, those are over. We, 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 I mean, now with, you know, everything on Zoom and Teams and, you know, WebEx, we, we, we already know that our work lives and our home lives are more connected than they've ever been in the past. And that's going to continue for a while. Um, so just, just sort of being, recognizing the whole person who's in that work meeting, um, is a whole person and you need to know what's going on with them in order for everybody to be comfortable and, and function optimally. Can, can I ask Ed the same question? Yes. I was going to jump in if you didn't yeah, ask me, please. Yeah. <clears throat> because, uh, Peter is, is also, has contributed at the other end of the culture question, namely that 
humanity at this point is, is culturally in trouble because we have a lot of cultures that are in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. It's expressed economically, politically, and even, uh, even at the human level with uh, various sorts of uh, very bad wars going on and killing people off. Yep. So the question is, is there something that we now know that should override this kind of crazy competition? And for me, that is uh, global warming, the climate change. Mm. And that the the next generation, Peter's kids and, and the generation beyond them are far more ready to say, look, we do have a global problem and we are gonna have to figure out how to turn competitive relationships among the big players into collaborative relationships. And Peter introduced, I think, the right word for this, is there emerging, particularly in, in maybe in the sciences and in the arts, a metaculture that mm. is free of some of the politics and economics, uh, represented by, by really some of the voices in the new generations. Mm. And, you know, we're not going to survive as humanity at all if we don't solve the problem of Russia and India and China and Europe and the U.S. fighting with each other. Mm. Uh, and I heard this morning a wonderful talk about what NASA is doing in the U.S. in terms of space exploration. And in the talk, there were many references to the collaboration with labs in the European Union and in Russia, that the space program and the interest in, in uh, astrophysics is already a, a metaculture. Mm. And I think there are artistic enterprises that don't think of themselves as national. Uh, and I think we have to find these metacultural units, or as Peter would say, it's in the air, but it's not yet well, not yet well distributed, is, is very we, important. And, um, we, we were, we, Ed, can I just fill in the details? We, um, Ed gave a keynote at the, um, uh, the business school at, at, in Bled in Slovenia, the, the IEDC. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the, the metaculture idea was sort of taking that William Gibson quote that the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed yet. Hmm. Um, and it is in things like, you know, um, the great Greta Thunberg, you know who she is, the, the young yeah, yeah, yeah. Swedish, yeah. you know, environmental activist, but that sounds like a put down. She's an environmental leader, we just don't know it yet. Yeah. Um, uh, she, she said, you know, what was it? Um, you people with your, um, your fairy tales of eternal economic growth, you know, destroying the planet, how dare you? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
And it was sort of like at the time, it was kind of shocking that a, that a 17 year old would have the guts to say that at the UN. <laughs> but the point was, she's right. <laughs> that the, the growth at, at, at all costs to the planet just doesn't make any sense anymore. So it doesn't make any sense for her generation. Yeah. And it doesn't make any sense for my daughter's generation, who was sort of a half a click ahead of her. And um, and then the other thing in the, the talk that I just wanted to, to, to point out, we, I found this amazing picture of a huge crowd of people just following the, the murder of George Floyd that we're reliving now here in the U.S. with the trial. But um, uh, so the the sort of the, the social justice Black Lives Matter movement within a week of the murder of George Floyd was global. Mm -hmm. So there were two things. One, there was a lot of sort of, um, you know, latent anxiety about this everywhere in the world, certainly in Europe, certainly in the UK, you know, obviously in the US. But, you know, there were protests in New Zealand you know, there were protests in, in China. I mean, it was, it just within a week, it was everywhere. So that's that idea that, you know, that we're all, the future is here. It's just shows up, it just pops up in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but so we found this picture of this huge crowd of people and um, one of them holding a sign that said, silence is violence interesting, powerful message. And then this, the, a woman addressing the crowd who was, you know, a woman of color with this, you know, huge, spectacular head of hair. And um, it was one of these where you had no idea where in the world this was, it could have been anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it was literally within a, a week or two of, of that incident in the US. And then if you look carefully, you could see in the background the famous cathedral in Cologne in Germany. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this was this multinational, multi-ethnic, global protest moment in that this one happened to be in Cologne, Germany. And that, that's um, the kind of communication transformation really that's happened. And it's, you know, the social media came along and it's been kind of blight on the planet in some ways. And we're trying to work out what it is and, You've got mental health problems. You've got the social dilemma type stuff. But the reality is, I believe it's going to cure a lot of the world's problems through communication and understanding. Yeah. And 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 the younger generation can use it far better than an older folk. No disrespect to you. <laughs> you know, it's 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 phenomenally powerful. And and we've got to have a hope that that we can fix the problems in the world with the use of it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the the donut economics model, Pierre. Have you seen no. that one? Phenomenal. Mm -hmm. It's worth a Google. The book's a bit of a chew. I'm going to get through it just now. But at the center of it is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Okay, so everything you need to be a human at the center. And then a donut that sits around it. And it's a green donut, how it's illustrated. But then on the outside is everything that's wrong with the world today. You know, plastic to the seas, uh, pollution in the, the air, you know, higher carbon levels, etc. deforestation etc etc it's kind of all the nasties that associated with what we've done to the planet as humans and mm -hmm. then the rules are quite simple is you you kind of make sure everyone in society is taken care of that's kind of maslow's stuff 
And then yeah. you sit within that green belt. So all of a sudden, if you, I don't know, you make another billion pounds, Peter, you don't spend it on flying back forward between Scotland and, and uh, Hip California every week to play golf. You know, it's like you, you, you're not a blight on the planet. You've, you've kind of, you, you just do what you, what it is. And I think eventually there'll be carbon um, clocks on people and say that, you know, you've got an allowance and, and don't be too greedy and don't do too much to the planet. It's kind of, I think where it'll go eventually, but. I think I'm an I'm an engineer. I'm quite hopeful about it all. But. Yeah, well, so so our our point in talking about all this though is that we you know we have a we have a model of the sort of the the practice of culture. Yes. And at the center is technical culture, which is an organization's kind of strategy, intent, purpose. Around that is the social culture, was how how people get along, how they relate to each other. Um, and then around that is the macroculture, which which takes into account sort of our place in time, um, our place on the planet, facts um, again, what kind of stuff like what's going on. You know, yeah. it's like we, we yes, yeah, social media is part of the macroculture. We mm-hmm. communicate in completely radically different new ways. Um, we don't really even want to use email anymore. We want to use Slack. Um, right, something that's more, even more sophisticated. So, but the idea of metaculture is that it's the future of cultural elements that end up informing those inner rings. And when is um, that book coming out? <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, this we haven't written that one yet, but <laughs> um, but the, but but the again, the idea is. If you're worried about your culture, you should start thinking about those, those, those elements of metaculture. And I don't know what they are. Everybody's going to see different elements of metaculture that are going to impact their business. But it's so easy to focus on, well, we, what if we focus on the culture we have today and see if we could improve it 10%? I don't know. Maybe you ought to think about the metaculture first and think about how that's going to impact your business than just fine tuning, you know, I mean, maybe you need to do both, but. Maybe that's our but, book to write, James. You're with uh, the, Shine, the Shine team here as well. We can well, uh, co-author it together, yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll maybe that's. The forward. Maybe that's, the, that's our book to write, James. <laughs> yeah, I'm fascinated with the uh, scenario planning. So it's like Singapore is big on it, I believe. They have uh, the center to all policies in the government as a scenario planning team but yeah you, you obviously done quite a lot of work in in singapore did you did you come across that that um kind of the methodology it's from shell believe it or not and pierre wack it was a frenchman he went to, to i didn't peter can you help me i didn't get everything that james said well the the so the the reference was to singapore doing a lot of scenario planning and oh. I, I am curious if when you were Ed, doing your um, the organization of economic development in Singapore work, were they sort of big scenario planners, futurists? Um, you know, was that was that something that you were seeing active already in them? And what was that in the eighty? Well, it's it's an interesting question because it has many connections. Lee Kuan Yew was educated in England, as were many of his his cohorts. And one of the first companies that really supported 
his strategy was Shell. Yes. Shell United, uh, you, the, the Royal Dutch Shell Company. And they were the ones who had really invented and were deeply embedded in scenario planning. Pierre Wack. Pierre Wack. Pierre so Wack. I don't know whether Lee Kuan Yew got that from Shell or, or did it. I, you I know, know the I, answer to that? Yes, I worked for Shell for four years in Aberdeen in Scotland. So it was Pierre Wack. So you can go to shellscenarios.com. And it was the Singapore government employed uh, the, the Shell personnel, I believe, at the heart of it all. Hmm. So, so they're heavily influenced by Shell, the Singapore government. But we don't know whether Singapore at that point needed scenarios or whether Lee Kuan Yew had his own clear vision that you need jobs and housing. And all the effort went into immediately developing international relations with big companies and getting, uh, he used a, a, an important Dutch uh, professor who knew all about uh, 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 port cities and how they evolve. He used a lot of expertise to create that economic development board that then created all the economic miracle. And the most important piece of that, you may not know that I wrote a book about Singapore oh, no, called Strategic Pragmatism. Wow. It's an important book because it's also kind of an analysis of how the Chinese think. <clears throat> Strategic Pragmatism. He decided that if you're going to get U.S. and European companies to invest, the place had to be squeaky clean and completely honest and non-corrupt. Now, how in, in that world, post-colonial world, do you achieve that? You achieve it by having an incredible scholarship program for your best and brightest young people. You send them all over the world with full support. And all they have to do is to commit to four years of work in the government mm -hmm. when they come back. Wow. So when Singapore yeah. got rolling, they created, which is still unique today, a non-corrupt, well-paid, civil service-based government unit that, that Western executives said, hey, they, they keep their promises, they're easy to work with, uh, they're not corrupt. That was by design. Genius. Genius. Your best and brightest people into government and pay them at the same scale as you would be paying business. Mm. That to me was the most interesting invention of Lee Kuan Yew and his group. Because he knew that if you couldn't get a, a government that functioned well, the businessmen would would not risk investing in Singapore. They found it a better place to invest than most other Asian places, particularly Malaysia was, was considered at that point very corrupt. Hong Kong was all over the place. Singapore stood out as a really good opportunity, and Taiwan. Those were the two places where a lot of Western companies that this is where we want to go. 
because we can I mean, work. I really like the uh, the case study in the book, the humble leadership. You you write up a case study, don't you, in the book? Yeah. About, about yeah, that. Exactly, exactly. The case study is in the book. Yeah, yeah. The short version, right? And you know, and a very interesting question uh, politically will be what China and uh, uh, Taiwan do vis-a-vis -vis each other. Because they're both very strongly managed systems. Mm. And I recently read a quote from, from uh, Taiwan saying, if we are invaded, we will fight to the left. Mm, that's going to be... We're not ready to be part of greater, greater China. No. Uh, so no. I don't know what will happen there. No. I mean, and, and a, another one to watch, honestly, is what happens in the U.S. over the next few years, because the current administration is far more like the uh, FDR administration. That's right. Than it is like the Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. In other words, the, the U.S., there are a lot of people who believe that... Um, you know, we can call it a public-private partnership, but the U.S. needs to have a much stronger uh, federal government driving um, investment and federal programs mm -hmm. to, to accelerate a recovery. And, um, you know, it's not the Green New Deal but there's a lot of elements of this recovery in the U.S. that if if the um, if the sort of federal government um, proves that it can propel a recovery, then it, it will be driven as much by you know public investment and it was private investment. And it will need what you're saying in the book around the relational. I mean, that is. It, that is going to need to epitomize and showcase relational working. Um, <laughs> again, another great example of where some of the, the, the thoughts and uh, that you have in the book become so relevant post pandemic um, yeah. as yeah. another great example. And we, we, we certainly have a lot to apply in this Brexit. Uh, that's the second time we've mentioned the B word, James. But Sorry. The, um, the uh, this is is equally relevant coming out of of our um, Brexit discussions. The relational aspects um, and the personization, I think, is equally important. And the lessons in the book so relevant now as as before. Um, I personally wanted to say I've got a lot out of reading it, and I am curious to go forward this year with its lessons and curiosities about applying it to many of my clients. And I will be in touch with both my successes and my failures with that, but I am on a journey with it and I'm passionate about it. And I think more people really need to understand what you've put across again in such a succinct way. So I wanna personally thank you for, for the book. No. It was our it was our pleasure. I, I you know there's one thing that does come up that we haven't really touched on that um, 
uh, is that it sounds like a sort of, you know, soft kind of be nice to people at work kind of message. In fact, one of the reviews in Amazon was, you know, it was the, the book's done fine with reviews on Amazon, but this person just decided to dismiss it as, you know, it's, it's a simple message. It's just, don't be a, you know, don't be an asshole at work. Mm-hmm. And that's, it, that's, that's not what it's about. Ed will be the first to point out that it doesn't mean you have to be friends at work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you have to be nice to be people at work. Mm-hmm. It does mean you have to recognize that the, the, you know, the groups you work with need to perform mm-hmm. and sharing information is what this thing's about. It's, it's about sharing things that might be relevant and maybe the hard leadership challenges is at some point leaders have to decide what's most relevant in informing decisions. But it, it isn't about being nice and being friends. It's about um, knowing enough about each other that you can, you can uh, be open on a substrate of trust and therefore you know, make better decisions. That's, that's what this thing's really about. And yeah, I'd like to thank you both for your time. You've been very generous and, and uh, it's been great to see you both. Yeah. Likewise, yeah. yeah. Nice to chat. It is. Yeah, Ed, say a final word. Yeah, please. What? Ed, say a final word. And Some it, final words? Yeah. Yep. I think we've got to convert competition and relationships into collaborative symbiotic relationships, period. Fantastic. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. That Respect. is. Yeah. Yeah. Our pleasure. It's nice to strengthen the, the special relationship between the US and the UK as well by this Zoom call. Yeah. <laughs> and Wales and Scotland. Well, Wales I mean, Scotland. after all, James, we, we, we only know each other on Zoom. You know, I hope, hope to come visit you and yeah, you're welcome anytime. Yeah, we'll take some time, but yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, it's a small country, so we can make sure we'll take you around and, and see some uh, nice sights. So we'll take care of you. Yeah. Excellent. And the same with Wales, Deborah. I'm, you know, you yeah. Know, Thank you. You're welcome uh, here anytime. Just bring an umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to let us know when this has been edited and finalized and is will be broadcast? and We'll we'll have a version of it ourselves. Yeah, happy to share that with you. No bother at all. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And also um, from both of our um, LinkedIn audiences, and um, you know, I'm doing podcasts. Uh, James is doing podcasts. The the questions that get generated from this, we will we will give you sight of them to get a the- a feel for some of the themes and challenges that the book is provoking here in, here in the UK. Um, so we'll give you sight of some of those comments and questions as well. Great. Well, it's, been a, hey, well it's been a pleasure to talk with you. You too, you too. And, and it's, um, yeah, very, very interesting. And I, there is gonna be some, a lot of provocative stuff coming out of this uh, podcast, I'm sure, but thank you very much. Well, and thanks for staying up late for us.
Yeah. Okay. Time flew for me, James. Did it fly for you? <laughs> it did. Yeah, I've had a long day. I've got young kids, so they're up early. But uh, yeah, no, it's been fantastic to, to meet you both again. Yeah, thank you yeah. very much. I, I love uh, James's clock in the back. That's it's broken. Yeah. Right, right, twice, right twice a day. day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's my gag. Yeah, it's my icebreaker. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, guys, and uh, have right. the rest of a lovely day. Yeah, take care. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 16 of Mostly Talk. And that was with um, great thanks to Deborah Fleming of Chameleon Works and also Edgar Schein and Peter Schein, the father and son duo, uh, for their enthusiasm and their education on organisational development and culture. This is Mostly Talk. Next week we'll be interviewing Rebox founder Joe Foster and uh, we're quite excited to, to catch up with him again. Um, find out a bit more about what we do at mostly.consulting. <laughs>